is Real Practical Teaching, real educators talking about real teaching. I'm Scott Muller. This podcast is going to be a first for me. Instead of introducing a topic and having a conversation with one person, this podcast is going to have a conversation with five. This is going to be the podcast's first panel discussion based on a survey asked to 50 students asking them to complete the sentence, Why do teachers X? Enjoy the conversation, and let me know what you think at the Twitter hashtag, RealPracticalTeaching. Thanks, everyone, for coming. This is the first time I've done a panel discussion, so before we get started here, we've got a lot of different disciplines uh, sitting around this table. Can you just introduce yourself just so that the listeners know whose voice is speaking and just what you teach? Uh, my name is Justin Marzen, and I teach high school geometry. Uh, I am Island Craig, and I have taught... Uh, elementary school, grade four specifically, and right now I'm a technology instructional coach. I am Trey Craig, and I currently teach seventh grade math, calculus, AP calculus, AP physics one, and AP physics two. Show off. Show off. <laughs> I'm Casey Grove, and I am a middle school, high school music instructor. Um, my name is Sarah Muller, and I am a high school English and social studies teacher. And of course, I'm Scott Muller, and I've taught social studies for six years, and I'm currently teaching AP seminar and AP research. So, what I basically did to get set for this panel, guys, is I went to about 50 students, different proficiency levels, and I just asked them to complete this statement. Why do teachers X? Uh, I took the ones that I thought were most relevant. We're not going to get to all of their comments, but I wanted to get to some of the ones that I, I saw a large pattern on. Now, again, none of you have prepared your responses to this. This is just going to be an open discussion. Oh, I'm sorry, Justin. You prepared for this. I wanted to have a few things in advance. I appreciate that. So we're just going to kind of talk off the uh, the cuff. The first couple of questions are about tests and summative assessments. So the first question that students asked is, why do teachers refuse test extensions? I don't. Is the one thing I would say. Yeah, uh, it really depends. I mean, are you talking a test as in, like, everyone is set to take this test on this day? Well, first I'd have to give those kinds of assessments. But, I mean, if a student has a legitimate concern, problem, has been absent, is really struggling and has communicated with me what their struggle is with a particular concept, I'm always open to discussion. I'm always open to being flexible as much as possible. I mean, I, I, I would be too, if a student is obviously sick, I can give you an extension. I, I wonder if they're asking the question, why do teachers refuse text ex- test extensions for the entire class when they feel they're not ready for a test? Uh, one thing I've done this year to lower that problem is I've actually given my classes some say in when the test is, and we discuss what it is they have to learn and how rigorous it is, and uh, I let the students talk about when they think an appropriate date is, and it makes it nice because they, they never feel like they need to ask for an extension because they got to talk about its placement. Uh, that doesn't mean the problem doesn't arise. I do have, uh, have, I've had some instances this year where students have come in on the day of the test and have asked for an extension, and I've, I've told them... Um, before that ever happened, that I don't grant extensions on the day of the test. But if you come to me early enough and tell me that you don't feel like you've had enough time, I've almost granted that with 100% success. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes it has to deal with it, the extenuating circumstances. I mean, <clears throat> I give my students, uh, I just sent out a calendar of the next month where I'm planned out till April. They know when the tests are going to be. And generally, I don't necessarily have to move the dates because the students already know what they're going to be in advance, even if they're going to be gone in advance. 
Um, I think it's you know it, it, it's kind of a responsibility on the part of the students to really um, get their get their ducks in, in, in a row and, uh, and and be prepared for their tests. And I think that leaves it to the bigger question is most people probably say no because they view it as a sense of student responsibility mm -hmm. and then it begs the question do we have some obligation to grant those extensions if we haven't prepared them or how much of it is our fault versus their fault? Oh, I'm not opposed to, uh, in fact, just last week I pushed back a test by almost a week or so because it wasn't going to, because the students weren't necessarily prepared. Now, that being said, I am the only teacher of that particular class or those two particular classes, right? I think one of the things that we experience is if you have a, a group of teachers teaching the same class in a, in a, a CPT, a, a common planning time team, that you really kind of occasionally get set in or locked into dates that it must be on this particular date. And that's unfortunate that you have to work with two, three other people, four other people perhaps, that you may not know when the test might be because that has not been clearly communicated amongst your team. And having right. all those teachers teaching a subject might be really, really nice, but it does take away a lot of that flexibility. It does. It does because you, you know, classes vary from mixture to mixture, and it's not necessarily uh, it's not exclusive to our school, right? No, yeah. I think that's why that's less of a problem in elementary because mm -hmm. teachers are able to grant extensions, and if their class isn't ready, you just naturally don't give the assessment until your class is showing that the majority of the mastery of that scale. But what do you do if the other teachers, let's say you're, you have two other teachers in your mm -hmm. geometry group or two other teachers in your world history group, what if they say, no, I don't want to extend them out, I think they're ready? I think that's some way where you, there has to be some kind of flexibility. Like working in, in common planning um, teams or, or PLCs or anything like that, there needs to be some level of, okay, we've built in a couple of flex days mm. or we have prepared for this we've discussed it or you're in constant communication saying you know what how are your kids doing with this mine aren't mine are really struggling with x like could we move this a day could we switch this a class i think i i think in in what the kids are saying they're saying like why do they refuse i think it really comes down to the teacher like teachers who are communicating with their students, who are in touch with what their students are doing, <coughs> where they're at at their different levels, like they're going to be flexible and open to what's going on. Teachers that flat out refuse extensions, I feel as though that's a completely different issue and comes down to the teacher themselves. Yeah, I wonder for this particular student what they were thinking about when they asked that question because, yeah. again, if, if you know your students, you know if they're ready to take that test or not or that summative assessment. So if you're not getting that extension and they're not ready, well, then we have a different problem here. Yeah. So, so getting into the next question that students had about tests, why do teachers leave tests until the end of the quarter? Now, I have to admit, I have done this before. Why do, it, does it sometimes seem like teachers cram all of their tests in that same week or couple of days? I think this goes back to the first one in that sometimes there are outside pressures and this artificial deadline mm -hmm. can be one of those outside pressures. Um, if you leave tests until the end of a quarter, a lot of the time that's when 
a lot of curriculum is just coming to fruition. Kids are ready to be assessed mm. at that yeah. point. And for the most part, as unfortunate as it is, no matter how much we discuss with one another and try not to overload students, that's just when a lot of the curriculum means that, okay, it's time for an assessment now. You're ready for it at the same time in all your classes. Yeah. And I think that, you know, in that same regard, there's the whole idea of sort of a clean break between the end of the quarter and then when we come back, in, in our instance, it, it, it finishes right before the, uh, right at when quarter three ends and then we've got spring break and then quarter four starts, uh, which is quite convenient in some respects. But we also have to, we also have this, this quarter quarter split um, sort of situation going on where we have to balance the two quarters and we're supposed to have the same number of tests in one quarter versus the same number of tests in another quarter. And I understand how that could theoretically create a lopsided grade because you've got more opportunities in one quarter to raise your grade and not so many in another quarter. Um, that may not necessarily work in, in favor for the students. Yeah, and I think sometimes it's, it's just administrative things we have to do. If we have to have a certain amount of tests or summative assessments in a particular period of time, well, just as you say, Casey, just the natural order of, hey, at the beginning of the year, it's going to take a few weeks to actually see if I can assess you on particular skills or standards. And it's all generally going to happen around that same time period. And that really begs the question, should we go to a semester system? Because that can at least separate those, those dates out. Happens no matter what. Like yeah. the college system in Australia is a semester system. We have all our assessments around the same time. Your first paper is due a month in, your next paper is due two months in, and then you have your exam at the end of the. Like it doesn't really. I think some of it comes down to we have at our particular school, we have quite a busy schedule. Everyone has eight subjects. We've got those administrative issues. You need to have a summative every three weeks. You need to be working within this quarter system. So I think all those outside factors are more of an issue than, like, I don't think it's teachers sitting there saying, oh, yeah, let's make that week hell and give them, like, seven tests in two days. <laughs> well, in a lot of situations, really... we're not allowed to do that. No, I mean, we, we consciously try not to do that, but... I think that a lot of it is that, like, just kind of natural progression through the whatever you're working on because if you're working on a specific standard it's normally quite complex with lots of different levels so throughout that semester you're working on those sub uh, areas and then it all kind of comes together at the end so even if you are doing many assessment assessments and uh, doing so frequently toward the end of the quarter or whatnot uh, that final culmination of all of those coming together is going to naturally happen and just if you're starting at the same point you're going to end about the same point with all of your yeah exactly we all start the same time we're all going to finish up at the same time like it's well I think the way the human brain organizes things is you know we like to have things culminate at the end of uh, our timing and so at the end of a quarter, we want to culminate something. At the end of a week, we want to culminate something. I remember going into high school, and we always had Friday quizzes because Friday was the end of the week. And we always have tests at the end of the quarter or at the end of the month or at the end of the week. And it just seems like the human brain naturally wants to organize things that way. And in my classes, I give summative assessments over the same standard multiple times to give students a chance to show that they've improved. And with quarter grades being final for us and 
and not carrying over to the next quarter, I need to give that last chance for the students who have been struggling to show me that they've learned the, and mastered the standard. I'm really curious if the students who are asking a question like that would ask the same question of semester exams, like why do we have a semester test? Because isn't it the same? It's the same question. Why have a quarter test? Why have a semester exam? Why have a cumulative exam at all? Yeah. Well, that's some of the questions that some Ivy League universities are asking. What is it? What was it? Harvard or Yale that doesn't do semester exams, or or at least the exams aren't cumulative over the entire semester. So one more question on on tests here. Why do teachers? And this is admittedly something I do. Why do teachers take so long to grade? Did they say what so long was? Because if it's two days, I'm sorry, no. I think <laughs> it's going to take me more than two days to grade your essay. Yeah, because if you've got a hundred yes. essays to grade, I mean... Yes. And you want to put that down to, let's say, I only spend four minutes per paper, which is not the case when you're grading a four-page paper and trying to give actually useful um, comments and feedback. Like, what's that, 400 minutes? Math, help me Six and a half hours worth <laughs> exactly. of... Exactly. Right? And that's outside of class time. That's right. not happening when I'm teaching. That's on top of my planning. That's on top of me needing to be a human being and have some time to myself. And grow as a teacher yourself. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, I've got the, these AP research kids, and they hand in... I've, and admittedly, I have much fewer students than all of you do. I've got nine in AP research. Yes, I'm sorry, yes, people listening to this. Yes, we all hate him for this. Yes. Sorry. yes, we all hate him. But when they have to send in that AP research exam, that's a 20-page master's-level research paper, and I can't skim through that. I have to look for particular instances of all these really complex things based on the AP rubric. It's going to take me a while to get to all of that. And thankfully, at least what AP does is it gives they give me about a month to actually assess them all. I mean, if I have 45 students handing those in, I'm going to need that month. But I part of me thinks I don't think students realize everything that we have to do in our lives on top of also having a personal life. They don't see us like okay. This is maybe a little personal, but they don't see us as people a lot of the time. Like, and I don't blame them. I didn't see my teachers as people either. Like, that's fine. How long does it take to grade a math test? Oh well, that depends on what month of the year it is. You know, <laughs> um, before I took on the additional seventh grade classes, I was actually getting most of my papers graded the day I issued them. Uh, and now it's taking me up to a week to do it. Um, at the beginning of my career, it would take me two weeks to return papers sometimes. And, and that was partly because of poor assessment design and partly because I was disorganized and, and not doing my job as well as I could. Uh, as I've taught longer, I've written shorter tests that do a better job of assessing what it is I need students to be able to do. I can grade a five-question test and give meaningful feedback to my students on their papers and everybody's better off for it than if I give a 25-question test with a bunch of short rote questions. Mm -hmm. uh, so changing my test design really paid off a lot, too. Uh, and then I just test more frequently. Yeah, I think, yeah, testing more frequently is something that has happened to me. And a couple of my students were complaining or, or voicing their concerns about <laughs> that. <laughs> and I said, look, we could have long tests, okay, or, you know, long tests that cover, say, six sections, or shorter tests that are two sides of piece of paper that are nine or ten questions at the most. And those grade really fast. But it's like Sarah said earlier, um, amount per student. How much time do you want to spend per student focused on what it is that you really, really need to do? Um, 
The other part of that too happens has to do with uh, with absent kids and giving meaningful feedback, right? I can't give you feedback if you're not in class, right? Yeah, so to steal some words from our principal, what I'm hearing is... <laughs> well, that's a conversation that we can have. But what I'm hearing, really, what I'm hearing is that there's a lot of talk about meaningful feedback, and that's something that I try a lot in my classroom, but I don't necessarily assess it all mm. the time. I give mm. feedback all the time, mm. but when I want to give like written or sit down and have a conversation feedback, it's difficult to find mm. the class time to do that. And just in general, it's difficult to find time to give meaningful feedback to make sure that students can grow at the rate that we want. And that's the point, right? Like, if we're going to give them something to provide feedback on, that's feedback for growth. Now, if it's a test where that standard, that skill is being totally assessed at that point, well, yeah, I can, I can wait a week or two to finally get that back to you because you're, we're not going to be working on different standards or skills mm -hmm. later. But... Yeah, if it's a formative and you need to be, like, you need to have that back because I'm assessing you again next week on this, like, I need to get it back to you ASAP, and yeah. it's, mm -hmm. it's tough. And then it becomes, let's work smart, not hard. Yeah. What can I do to, dem to, to see how well you're doing at that skill or standard, but not making it harder on myself to actually give you that feedback? But when you're talking about making, trying to make a student a better writer, you're, even a summative assessment is still somehow is formative. Still, yeah. Oh, for sure. It's mm -hmm. always, all written assessments in my mind are always formative because they are going to write again. It may and not be that topic. I think, I think that's the case for every single assessment that you give. It's the opportunity to see growth later. Yeah. So that actually goes into the next couple of questions we're going to be looking at, and it's about homework. Oh, Yay. joy of joys. So first question that students ask is, why do teachers assign homework? I don't. I don't. <laughs> I think I'll talk from the elementary perspective on that. Is In elementary school, I think homework's mostly given for the parents. I think that it's a way to keep the parents happy. Oh, yeah. Really? Yes. A lot of... So, so this year, we actually stopped giving homework as an elementary-wide thing. And there was so much pushback from the parents... Mm -hmm that now many of the teachers give optional homework. And it always has to be labeled as optional because it's a policy now that you don't give homework. But, um, yeah, the parents want their kids to be doing homework. It makes them feel like they're participating in, um, in their kids' school lives, I guess, or that their kids are learning because they get to see it in front of them and they don't need to, I guess, trust that the teachers are doing their job in school. Uh, I kind of work around that by always kind of flipping my classroom a little bit and doing more videos that the parents can watch and see what I'm doing because when you give homework on an elementary level, oftentimes the parents will try to help their students do the homework and then sometimes teach a different way than the strategy that you are teaching specifically. So doing a lot of like video homework where your homework assignment is watch this yeah. <laughs> or give your opinion on something like that where it's not rote practice. And when I taught history, I tried to do a lot of that. You know, if I want to make this something that's meaningful and purposeful, well, here's a flip video on the content, and then we can go into much deeper practice exactly. of that later. But it, it wasn't something that I, I never wanted my students to think that they were given busy work. And I will admit, when my first couple of years of teaching, I just gave homework because I thought it was something you were supposed to give. But I had no idea 
that it was actually meaningful and purposeful at the time. It took me years to actually understand that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, easily. But I think, you know, definitely for feedback and for practice, especially <coughs> when it comes to math, but what I've done in, at least the last couple of years is just given a bunch of practice problems for the unit that we're on and said, here, go ahead and do these, and even going so far as to give all the students the solutions at the same time. Like, I'll send out the homework, and I'll send out the, the solutions in the same email and say, here you go, have fun. Um, I'll touch on it in class, but at the same time, it gives the students the flexibility that they would have to sort of manage their time um, as far as the practice goes. Teaching in a fine arts classroom, I don't give a whole lot of homework, but I do always say that if they want to extend what we're doing in class, whether it's working on a project, because I always give them class time to do it, or whether it's like practicing piano skills, like if they want to practice that outside of class time, they're always welcome to, and I usually provide resources for that, but I never require to grade it. And I think that's the shift, right? It's, it's moving from homework as something everyone has to do to a resource that only certain students need to do to practice skills or to just check their own progress. And even then it comes down to student choice. Like, you could choose not to do the homework. Like, that's not going to grow you as a student. So that's when it comes down to, like, okay, you're being provided with these resources. You have this opportunity for feedback and practice. Now you take ownership of this and you do something with it and you, like, grow yourself. Like, the opportunity is there. Especially with, like, those really high-achieving kids that are so involved in so many different things. If you're giving them mandatory homework that's just rote practice problems, you're stressing that kid out. Yeah, unnecessarily. For, for no reason. Mm -hmm. When, like, when I have a, a, a fourth grader come in practically in tears because they didn't get to do their reading log the night before because they had this, this, and this to do. And I'm like, you are nine years old. You get to relax about missing your reading log for a day. I don't care. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And I think, you know, I personally have tried to only assign, like, when we're reading novels, okay, I try to do everything else in class, but reading a novel, we don't have the time. Five minutes, four days a week. So, you know, it's, that's the expected homework. And still, I have students that choose to read and choose not to read. And, you know, it, it has a natural consequence. Mm -hmm. If you have not read this novel, you will not be able to analyse it well. You will not be able to really go in depth on characters. You can't find a good theme. Your evidence is weak. So it has a natural consequence. I don't need to be standing there over your shoulder saying, why haven't you read chapters four through six? Sure. Like, it's and, just not necessary. And honestly, like... I don't recall having any homework in college. No. no. Like, the professor was <laughs> like, yeah, you I can try these. Oh, there are definitely so much. <laughs> I had so much homework. Assigned homework? Yes. That they checked? Really? Daily. Really? Yeah. In music? Wow. In, for learning basic music theory, there were so many people in that first year that did not have the basic skills necessary. That was the weed out class. And by the end of first quarter you had people dropping like flies because they could not keep up with the workload and that actually leads into the next question the second question students had on this why do teachers assign quote so much unquote homework i think it really depends on the teacher like we have yeah. i feel like this is this is one of those cases where you know we have a group of teachers who are consciously trying to do the best thing for their students and taking into account pedagogical research and 
putting those things into place. There are plenty of teachers in many schools around the world who do not do that and who go through, like you said in your first year, I gave homework because that's what you could do. I gave three chapters and expected notes, Cornell notes in two days because that's what you do. And they're not necessarily saying like, okay, what is actually, let's use the term best practice because we haven't heard it yet this round. (laughs) Um, You know, what's best practice and how are we best serving them? Yeah, and and to be honest, I think it depends on the teacher because there are some people who just like to give homework. And my question would be, why? Why would you give daily homework that you're forcing all students to do? And honestly, if if they're calling it so much homework, they don't see it as as credible. So what kind of homework are you giving? Well, I know a lot of colleges recommend um, a two-to-one homework ratio for every hour you spend in class you should spend two hours in homework our kids are in school for eight hours a day they would literally be doing homework 24 hours a day yeah yeah after their you know for 16 hours a day plus the eight hours in school if they did that and and, you know the other thing to consider is in college you each class you see about three hours a week so it's a different workload totally uh and they're not developing children either Mm. um you know I, i generally don't give much homework what i tend to do is i have a document camera and I'll put the book or a worksheet or uh, some other resource I provide for homework under the camera, and I'll talk about which problems will be good for students that are struggling or for students that need to master the harder problems or, you know, whatever their goal is at that moment. And I'll say, you know, maybe you should be able to do a couple of these, and maybe you should be able to do a couple of these. And I talk to them about how some students need to do more homework than others. In, in math, at least, there's a lot of students who are going to do one or no problems Sure. Uh, from each different type, and they're going to show up and ace the test. And there's other kids that are going to do lots and lots of homework, and they're still going to struggle with going to be. And everybody's different, and I can't assign the same homework assignment for everybody. Sure. I, you know, I don't, I always use the basketball analogy. I, mm-hmm. I don't play basketball. I don't know much about basketball, but I know, like, if I was a basketball player, maybe I would need to work on a jump shot, and maybe I would need to work on dribbling, and maybe I'd need to work on a layup and three-point shooting and this sort of thing, right? And if a student is really good at one of those, he doesn't need to do 25 of those same kind of problems, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe he needs to focus on another area like his layups or maybe his jump shot, okay, because he's really good at sinking three-pointers. That's just how it is. And and what you said a moment ago is you can't necessarily paint with a broad brush because everybody has different developing skill levels that way. Mm -hmm. There's only one hazard I see, and it's that students learn by doing and I think a lot of teachers who give a lot of homework do it because they lecture uh, or provide mm, direct instruction yeah. for the entire class. A student yeah. is not going to learn without doing homework yeah. if their entire class is direct instruction. Mm-hmm. They have mm-hmm. to do it at some point. And hopefully students are embracing those best, or teachers are embracing those best practices and allowing students the opportunity to be the ones doing the work yeah. and the analysis and the thought processes. Mm. Um, I mean, gosh, I was a trainer at Olive Garden, and even they embraced that principle when I taught people how to bring breadsticks to the table. We had a training method called the tell-do method, and it started with the trainer saying, I'll tell you, and I will do it, and then I will tell you, and you'll do it while I tell you, and then finally, you have to do it while telling me what you're doing. Uh, And, you know, if Olive Garden can figure out uh, best practices (laughs) in education, hopefully professionals in teaching can too. I mean, we'd like to think that that there are no lectures going on anymore in classrooms in the year 2017, but unfortunately, we all know people that we work with who are still stuck in that mode. And, And while that's not 
good to do all the time, we do have to acknowledge that lecturing oh. has its place. Oh, yeah. I am yes. one of the oh, I am right. one of the students, yeah. and I will say it over and over again. I am one of those people that learns best by watching someone else do it. Throw one problem up on the board and say, "Hey, this is how to do that." I'll be like, "Got it. Yeah, <laughs> done." But I've I learned that, that concept. But like you said, like there's a time and a place. Like if I'm exactly. introducing a unit, I'm introducing something new. Where it's our first day on something, or even you know I've noticed a consistent issue across the board. Like I work a lot in workshop model, and so if I'm noticing the same thing again and again when I'm conferencing with students, I'm like, okay, I know I need to stop, and we need to take a day, and we're all going to go through this, and not necessarily lecture, but do like an inquiry lesson where it's like, okay. This is where we need to go. This is what we need to work on. I'm going to show you exactly how to get there. Now go and do it yourself. But you did that on purpose based on the needs of your students at the time that doing a short yes. lecture was going to be valuable for them. Yeah. My first year of teaching history was every day for 45 to 50 minutes just talking because I thought that was what I was supposed to do. That's what I happened in my history classes. Yeah, well, yeah history is brutal for that. And honestly, we are at a college prep school where students are going to go to college and in their first year there's going to be some guy who's going to just talk for 50 minutes or 55 minutes or whatever it is and he may not write things down. Mm -hmm. He may not use PowerPoint or a a star Mm -hmm. board or anything like this, right? Like it's going to be difficult because you have to listen to what the man is saying. Or a woman. Or a woman. Or a woman, right? <laughs> All day. It is 2017. Exactly. Day right is now. perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. I see both sides of this tr- because, like, in my classrooms, I'm I'm essentially the thing that everyone says you shouldn't be, and I'm like, I'm the bastion of knowledge. Like, everyone just has to listen to me and do what I say. But at the same time, everything that I'm saying is do this, and then they practice the skill, and then do this, and they practice the concept, and then do this, and they practice the skill. And there's not necessarily a way to in- do an inquiry-based learning with 35 middle school and high school kids about, all right, what do you think the best way is going to be to achieve singing like the color purple? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Not the book, not the movie, <laughs> actually singing the metaphor purple. Ooh, Casey, I've got an idea for you. For your next concert, could you just every day for class sing the songs to the students and then let them sing it for the first time at the concert? That is a tried and true teaching method. It's called teaching by rote and there is a time and a place for it. It is not the time and place for every single thing. But there is like, I teach at least one song for every concert purely by rote because some students are not developmentally ready to learn it another way. Mm-hmm. So, different topic here. Let's talk about group work. Uh, one, one of the questions I got asked repeatedly is, why do teachers force me to work with other people? And I will <laughs> happily admit, I don't like working in groups. Mm-hmm. In my master's degree, there were a couple of group assignments I had to do, and it was painful because, I'm sorry, some of the people in my group were slacking, mm-hmm. and I did not want my name, their name on a product that I you know, was also working on. So what's our justification? Why do we force students into groups? Because in life, you're going to have to work in a group, and guess what? It doesn't change. There is always going to be someone that does absolutely nothing. There is always going to be someone who does the bare minimum, but then you've got to fix it anyway because they did it wrong. 
there's always going to be someone who does all the work because they care so much about it. Like, and I'm not saying that's the only reason we, why we do it, mm-hmm. but it's part of it. It's and you can try and make it as good as possible. I try to let them choose their groups as much as possible. I will advise them when I think they're making a poor choice and say, <laughs> "Are you sure that's what you want to do and who you want to go with?" And at the end of the day, it's up to them. And then I think that takes away some of the issue. Like, it still sucks to be in a group and to have your grade or part of your grade reliant on someone else because you you hate not having that control. But there's ways you can do group work that's less painful. I think it's just a part of it, as Justin said before, we're preparing them for college. In college, undergrad and grad, you have to do group work. If you go into the prof- any professional field, look at us. We're all sitting on CPTs and grade level meetings and all sorts of fun things. Yeah, except for you, Casey. Yes. Working with other people. <laughs> you have well, you're a department chair, though. You are working. I with do other have people. to work with a lot of other people. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. manage people. Exactly. You know, it's learning those people skills. Yes. And that's part of it. We are not just teachers of our content. We are teachers of yeah. persons. Human we have to teach people skills while we teach music, while we yes. teach English, while we teach history, while we teach writing, while we teach math, while we teach everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and two of the most important like future skills are collaboration and communication, and you mm-hmm. cannot learn to collaborate or communicate if you do not work with a variety of other people. And that, I think, yes. is where also elementary classrooms are great, because you can group kids in a variety ways of ways in just one day, and you get to see all the ways that they're interacting, whereas in middle school and high school classes, you're like, oh, I'm grouping them like this, and you don't know how they're being grouped the rest of the day. So you get to yeah. give the kids a little bit more opportunity to choose, and then also work in some groups where their roles are defined and fixed, and they actually have to try to fit a variety of roles. So that's... Also, yeah. <laughs> also in terms of, of, of group assignments, sometimes the task that I'm asking you to do is better in a group. Sometimes yeah. I'm going to use individual instructions. Sometimes I got to use whole group instruction. It depends on the needs of the class. Yeah. In my AP seminar class, one of their performance tasks, which counts for part of their AP score, is a group presentation and a group performance task. And it's always something that students struggle with, and I have to go through norms of collaboration with them, and, and I have to go through timekeeping and communication because even as juniors they still have to to practice that but if ap says this is important it it is a reflection of what's going to happen in the real world yeah we have ap exams coming up and uh after spring break begins my review period for all three of the ap classes i teach and you know one of the big plans i have is um we're going to have a presentation weekly done in groups usually groups of two or three and so the students will have to work out a problem and they'll have to present it to the class without a full explanation. It'll be videotaped. But uh, I've done this in the past, but I don't tend to grade it. I'll give feedback. I might give a grade, but that grade doesn't get recorded in my grade book. I, I don't like recording grades to count towards your average for group work because I know that the workload's not always even. But what I do with this in particular is I'll then at the, uh, the presentations will be the next to last day of the week usually and then the day after they'll have a problem that's very similar from a different year that they'll have to work on individually for their actual assessment grade. Um, And and that usually seems to work really well, and it gives them an exposure to more uh, topics. So here's a question for you, and it's it's not on the list, but I'm curious to see what what you're doing, especially you, Island, Mm -hmm. in the the elementary school. What about that one kid who will not do anything, 
and and sometimes we don't have that particular student class, but there typically tends to be that one mm-hmm. who just who whichever group this person gets put in, they're gonna have to do the work for that student. That student will not do the work for whatever reason. So, how do we approach group work with that one particular student? There, there's always at least one, <laughs> at least, at least. Um, and it really kind of starts at the beginning of the year and building up relationships with your kids because if you don't have a good relationship with your kid and you run into that situation and there's like a small conflict and they shut down and they won't go any further, you can't pull them back in and get them to like go ahead and do it. Um, and that's more of the kid that won't, not necessarily isn't doing anything on paper that like they really won't talk to the other other people. There's also the the students that sit there and will let other people do the work. Um, And that's why, at least uh, here, the group work, if you're working in a group on a project or something, it is not graded. It's not for a final grade and uh, anything. You're normally doing it as a way to gain knowledge, doing research, uh, doing a book study and where you all have different roles in the the book club or uh, literature circle, whichever one you use but no <laughs> yeah same thing yeah, same, same, same. I, same, I know, same I know I know um but yeah it's 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 tough because there are those kids that will refuse to work with other students and it guess I guess what I'm saying is it depends on the individual student as to how you approach it because there's no like band-aid fix it yeah that's true mm-hmm. Any other strategies if, if I run into the situation? Because what I've sometimes done is say, all right, look, you're, I'm going to give you're you something. Yeah, I'm going to give you yeah. something individual because. Yeah. And I think that's the thing. If it comes out that this is just going to be so negative for other students in the class, like I'm not yeah. going to punish other students who are engaging and attempting and doing their best and, and you know, wanting to be successful. I'm not going to say, okay sucks to be you you get this guy like it's I will isolate them I will like give them a chance and then I'll say okay I'm going to give you an alternative task and it's not usually it's after discussion and Mm -hmm. after invention intervention and and it's not okay right from day dot we're doing group work okay Johnny you're on your own like you don't do that kind Mm -hmm. of thing but you work through it, and if necessary, and if it impacts the learning of other students, like, that's what it always should yeah. come back to. Like, I will work with you and help with this, and we'll work it out as best we can until it negatively impacts the class and the other students who need to have their education respected. And then I'm, you're going to have something separate to do. Just like you said, Island, there's no Band-Aid fix, and it goes back to what the math teachers were saying about assigning homework it's like different kids are going to need different things fair isn't always equal yeah yeah and yes i mean that's a big thing but we also have to try and balance what we talked Mm -hmm. about before with teaching those people skills and Mm -hmm. where do we draw the line it's like we need to keep trying to teach those interpersonal skills and how to communicate and how to do all this but at some point we stop building that student up and we start detracting from others when mm, yeah. we do that. And it it's a fine line and it's a balance that we, I think a lot of people get wrong, but a lot yeah. of people, everyone's trying. I think one great way to approach it would be like 
talk to them and be like, this is an important skill to learn. Say, this time I'm going to let you work independently, but yes. before our next group project, let you and I practice some of those skills that you are struggling with with your group and then give them an opportunity to work yeah. to see exactly what's going on and why they need to do it yeah. differently we've, next time. And we've had conversations before. Um, I'm saying we and pointing to Scott. <laughs> <laughs> we've had conversations before where it's like, okay, you know what, I'm going to get you to be on your own this class. You know, next class, you want to come back in. Like, you know the expectation. You know what's needed. You want to come back in, you can come back in at any time. Like, you are welcome to come back. But you need to know that this is the expectation. And, yeah, having those one-on-one conversations. And sometimes that works. Sometimes one class or half a class sitting out on their own, like, to the side while everyone else is working on something, they get it together, you know? And sometimes just explicitly teaching that one skill that's missing is all that's necessary. I got this response from a bunch of different students, and I think we can we can really have some good real talk on this one. Why do we like some students and not like others? Can we pause the recording? <laughs> <laughs> um... It's a difficult question to yeah. answer because I don't think any of us ever really want to admit that we have favorites. I'll admit it. And not favorites. <laughs> totally. Well, well, we all have... Students are people, right? Yeah. And we all and like... people. Yeah. And we all like certain people more than others. And, yes. of course, there are certain types of students that make our lives easier. And there are certain types of students that make our lives harder. And I don't actually know if that equates into the liking because I've had some of those really mm-hmm. difficult kids and I really really like those and they're kids. some of the fun like mm-hmm. they are some of the funniest wittiest like I've got kids like that who you know are the behavior kids in other classes or whatnot but they are fun individuals and they yeah. can be like the highlight of my day it just it doesn't come down to that it's Sorry, I, I cut you mm. off. Oh, no, 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 but I, I think, I think it, it, it is related because that pulls, pulls into, like, the personal, like, you kind of like them on a personal level versus, yeah. like, because there can be that high-achieving academic student that annoys you half to death because they're constantly doing things that drive you batty, but they're a high-achieving, high-academic student. Yeah. Whereas there's that low kid that maybe blurts out all the time and drives other people batty, but it's your break in the day and you actually get a chance to relax and laugh versus being yeah. on all the time. So I think it is. It's just because students are people and more people and for you me, can't really control who you like. For me it comes down to like, if you treat other people in class like crap, or if you go out of your way to treat me like crap, or you just completely like... At the beginning of every year, I try my hardest to see everyone as equal. And, like, we are starting this out together, and we're all in the same spot, and we're going to go forward together. If you consistently exhibit certain behaviors that are negative for the class, negative for other people in the class, or if, like, one of my charming students who every single assessment gets handed in late, every single one, 
with an excuse of my internet didn't work, my phone broke, my this happened, my that happened, and no, that isn't actually what happened when you ask mum and dad. Like, at the end of the day, I'm just sick of it. I'm sick of you lying to me. Like, why is it that you have to sit there and lie to me? Why can't you just say, sorry, I had three other assignments due and yours was at the bottom of my list? I'd rather you be honest with me and tell me that than sit there and lie. Like, I, I think I actually... I could almost 100% say that the only students that I really do not like have been students that have lied to me. I've been reading a book lately, and it talks about... It, it's a lot of things I disagree with, but one of the things that I'm finding that is pertinent to this discussion is it talks about how we perceive students and how they come in with certain skills or abilities or personality traits and how they behave in our class or how they achieve in our class is almost strictly tied to what we value in a student, like what we see as valuable. You see honesty, Sarah, as a valuable trait in the student yeah. and that's clearly one of the number one things because that's... I mean, they could get away with not handing in something for a month if they're just honest with me. Like, you know, if something's come up, if something's genuinely a problem. But some people view timeliness as their number one thing, and some people yeah. view just strict participation as their number one thing, and some people view humor as their number one thing. <laughs> number two. <laughs> but no matter what it is, it's like what we value kind of determines how those students get viewed in our mm. classroom. Mm. I work really hard to, to separate whether or not students are good students from whether or not they're good people. And uh, you know, one of my least favorite students that I ever taught was the valedictorian of our class, and probably one of the most outstanding academic uh, people I've ever encountered. Uh, the student was also very mean to their peers and to faculty members, and, and was just not a nice person. Um, and, and I've had some students that failed my class with a two percent, and are one of my favorite people. And I, I find that a lot of our students have a hard time separating that when they judge whether or not they like their teachers. Mm. They tend to like their teachers if they think the teacher provides an easy class or a good class. But if they think the class is too hard or if they think the class isn't organized well, they don't like that teacher. And if I could just teach students to separate their teachers as teachers and as people and to realize just because they're a good teacher doesn't mean they're a great person or just because they're a bad teacher doesn't mean they're a bad person. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's one of my favorite achievements because... You can get along with somebody even if you don't think they're doing a good job as a student or as a teacher. Oh, okay. no, I'm Especially the people <laughs> around this table. Especially well, Yeah, I mean, there are some people. <laughs> you got to work with people. We it's all work with challenge. those people. <laughs> well, thanks for coming on the panel discussion, uh, guys. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope whoever's listening gets a lot out of it. Thanks for having us. <laughs> Cheers. Glad Bye. to be here. Thanks for listening to the podcast. So, what did you think? What points did you agree with in our conversation? What points did you disagree with? Let us know on our Twitter hashtag, RealPracticalTeaching. And if you have any suggestions for topics to address in the future, you can let us know there too.